Well, we're back in Matthew 11. Uh, we started Matthew 11 this uh, last week, and I said, well, add a, add a part two to the title, When Will the Kingdom Come? Or add a part one last week and a part two this week. You might want to add a part three. Uh, What's amazing about this passage, uh, just to set it in its context, remember we said that Matthew is really built around this alternation between narrative, story, what is Jesus doing, or what's going on around him, and then teaching, big teaching sections by Jesus. We call them discourses. So the first discourse was the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7. Preceding that was chapters 1 through 4, telling us about Jesus' identity uh, and showing how he fulfilled prophecy, even, even while he was an infant, even in his young life. Uh, and then from chapter, chapters 5 through 7, we see his authority in a teacher. He, we see him as authority as lawgiver, as king. Chapters 8 through 9, we see his authority. Uh, we transition back to narrative, and it relates, Jesus, uh, it relates Jesus healing people using miracles, giving foretaste of the kingdom, showing his authority in that sense. And then we reach the next discourse in chapter 10, the discourse on mission, as Jesus sends out his 12 to go and proclaim the message. And remember, John and Jesus and his 12, it's all been about this simple message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. That's what everything has been built around, but Jesus is increasingly showing his identity as king, and he's displayed that in his authority of teaching, his authority of miracles. And so technically, when we get into chapter 11, we've exited the discourse to his disciples, but Jesus has a lot to say. And really what's interesting about where we're at in Matthew is it's a tipping point. It's a tipping point in Matthew. It's a, it's a transition in the story. Because everything that's come before has proved that Jesus is the king, that he is the Messiah, that he demands faith and repentance and allegiance and following and all of those things. And yet there's a question. Uh, if you were to put a spectrum out there, there's, there's the disciples. There's the disciples who have entrusted themselves to Jesus. They have repented and put their faith in Jesus. They're following him with their lives. And they're committed followers. They don't understand everything yet, but, but they're, they're growing in their understanding. And we'll see that more and more as things go. And then on the other end of the spectrum, what you can start to see is the scribes and the Pharisees. Um, th their opposition even began as early as John, uh, Matthew 3 with John. Uh, and John called them a brood of vipers. And Jesus has, he's, he's also characterized them that way, even in the Sermon on the Mount, as hypocrites, uh, as those who... Uh, they, they, they're doing all the external forms, but there's no heart behind it. And what we increasingly see, and we even saw this at the end of Matthew 9, and we're going to see it uh, reach a pinnacle in Matthew 12, that they are rejecting Jesus. They are opposed to Jesus. So you've got the disciples on one end of the spectrum. They don't know everything, but they're committed followers of Jesus. Then on the other end of the spectrum, we have the scribes and the Pharisees, and by and large, the leadership of Israel, and they're opposing Jesus. And then right in the middle somewhere are the crowds, the crowds. Those who have been drawn, they see, hey, that's pretty cool stuff that Jesus is doing with his miracles. They've been drawn because of that. But we have this question, are they actually disciples or are they not? Where are they? Where is their allegiance? Where is their allegiance? That's the question. 
And what we're going to find is that Matthew 11 through 12 becomes a tipping point for that generation of Israel. The big question that's been governing this section, and there's a lot going on in this section, that's why it's taking us so long to get through it, but we need to understand it. This is critical. And the big question is this, who are Jesus and John? When will the kingdom come? And how does their generation affect this? You see, the the crowds are trying to decide. We even see John, John, the forerunner of the Messiah. We saw him last week questioning is, are you the one to come? Are you really the Messiah? Because it just doesn't look like what I pictured. I didn't picture me in prison, or at least for very long. I pictured judgment, the Messiah coming in, bringing judgment in that day of the Lord. Remember we talked about this idea of the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord is always something in the Old Testament that brings God's judgment. God is showing up. It brings judgment for the enemies of God, but also salvation for his people. Well, in a sense, you see in Jesus' ministry, you see a lot of grace, you see a lot of favor, and that's amazing. He's proclaimed judgment a couple times, but he hasn't enacted judgment. And so what we saw last week is John is like, are you really the one coming? Are you really the Messiah? And Jesus says, look at what I'm doing. Yes, I'm the Messiah. We answered that question. So we know who Jesus is. We know who Jesus is. We also said, kind of along with John, that Matthew is telling these things for his audience, a Jewish Christian audience, because their generation, their culture around them is saying, you know, their Jewish friends and family who aren't Christians are saying, you believe that that crucified carpenter was the Messiah? You think he's the king that was promised, and you think that he's going to establish the kingdom? That's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. And there's that tipping point. There's a tipping point, too, as we think about this, and we talked a little bit about this last week, but there's a tipping point, not only what's going on in Matthew, there's a tipping point similarly in our culture, isn't there? You know, for generations and for a couple centuries or so, uh, I mean, our nation was founded on Christian principles. It was, by and large. And so Christianity has been this, this positive, yeah, this is good. At least they like the idea of Jesus. Jesus is a nice guy. Uh, Jesus does some cool things. Jesus is kind. But now what we're beginning to see is that what has always been true, that people have not, yeah, Jesus might be a nice guy, but I don't want him as king. I don't want him as Lord. I don't want him as a judge. And there's a tipping point. That's becoming more and more clear in our culture. where Jesus, People are fine with Jesus as being nice, but they're not fine with Jesus being judge. They're not fine with Jesus being king. And so our culture tells us what you believe. Increasingly so, it tells us what you believe is ridiculous. So how do you respond to that? Well, how you respond is answering these questions. You need to remember, who is Jesus? But also, who is John? And also... When will the kingdom come, and how does their generation affect this? So we've already answered that first question, is Jesus the one coming in verses 2 through 6? Yes, absolutely he is. You can just look at his works and what he said, and you know that he is that Messiah that was prophesied in Isaiah. But next, we come to this question that the text brings up, and it's this. What did the crowds go out into the wilderness to see? What did the crowds go out into the wilderness to see? And really, this is the question of who is John? Who is John? Uh, If you were to boil that question down. And so that's what we're going to see in verses 7 through 15. 
Now, I want to draw your attention briefly to verse 15. Very short, but Jesus says this at the end of what he's about to say in verses 7 through 15. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, what does that mean? It means, listen up. It means, what I just told you, if you give it a surface listen, isn't going to be all that impressive. So you need to pay very, very, very careful attention to what I just said. And so I start there because I want to warn you, what Jesus says is actually fairly complex. A surface read, it doesn't look all that complex. But what he is saying and affirming is complex and profound. And so what I would ask you is what Jesus asked you, listen up and listen carefully to what is about to be said. So let's see what Jesus says, verse 7. As they went away, that's John's disciples who, brought, who were talking to Jesus, and they're going to bring uh, Jesus' message back to John in prison. As they were went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds. Okay, he just shift audiences, because he was just talking to John, essentially, through his disciples. Now he's talking to the crowds, the crowds who are in the middle of that spectrum, the crowds whose loyalties, uh, where are they at? We don't know. Okay, so he is not speaking to disciples, committed disciples anyway. He's speaking to the crowds, this neutral character in the story. Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. And here's our question that heads the section. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Now, if you remember in John 3, right, the, the, whole, the idea, or in Matthew 3, John is doing his ministry out near the Jordan in the wilderness. And it says that all these people came around John and came to experience his baptism, came to hear his preaching. And so Jesus knows a lot of these folks went out to see John. And so he asked this question, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? Now notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, what did you go out to see? He says, what did you go out into the wilderness? Now that's actually fairly important for what he's about to say. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? No one goes out into the wilderness normally. It's not like the picnic area. I'm going to go out into the wilderness. Sounds like a good idea. Um, no, it's why, what drew you? What drew you out into the wilderness next to the Jordan? A reed shaken by the wind? Now, that's a rhetorical question. The implied answer, of course you didn't go out to see a reed shaken by the wind. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about you're by the Jordan. There's a bunch of reeds there, and they're just flopping in the wind. Well, they're out there. They're out there in the wilderness, but that's a pretty common and unassuming sight. That's not why you went out. That's not why you went out into the wilderness. There's nothing there. That's common, the idea of a reed shaking by the wind. So that's not the answer. But what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? The idea of soft clothing is someone that has, um, uh, soft clothing is expensive, but it's the idea of someone who's in the upper echelons, the elite. Part of the, as he's going to say, part of the royal court. Now, if someone elite comes, a celebrity comes, let's just put it in those terms, right? A celebrity comes, yeah, you might go out into the wilderness and see that. You hear of all those concerts that happen in these weird off, like out in the desert places, and millions of people converge on it, right? Because something, something spectacular is happening. So you might go out into the wilderness to see a celebrity, to see someone of the royal court, but they wouldn't be in the wilderness, because he says this, behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. 
You're not going to go into the wilderness to see uh, that sort of a person because that sort of a person isn't in the wilderness. They're in king's houses. And what Jesus is doing with these questions, he's building suspense. He's building suspense, right? He's trying to get them to think about why in the world did you go out into the wilderness? Why did you go out there? And so the third one answers, what then did you go out to see? Verse 9, a prophet? Yes, that's what he says. You, you, and we know this from, from, from Matthew, and we can even see later on in the book of Matthew that uh, the, people, the people considered John to be a prophet, and Jesus affirms, yes, that's correct. You went out into the wilderness to see a prophet, Someone who looks an awful lot like Elijah. Remember, he wore this camel hair vest and the leather belt, and that's how Elijah's described. And Elijah was taken up near the Jordan, and John's near the Jordan. There's intentionality in that. Yes, you went out to see a prophet, but then Jesus builds. Then he builds, and he says this. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. Wait, wait, wait. How can you be more than a prophet? Well, Jesus is going to explain, but he's saying, he's amplifying the crowd's idea. They're, he's getting them to focus on who John is, and he's amplifying their idea. Yes, he's a prophet, but he's more. How so? Verse 10. This is he of whom it is written, so Jesus is quoting scripture here, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Now, um, your, um, your Bible may have a little footnote next to it, a little letter or something that says, hey, this is a quote of Malachi 3.1, and it is. But there's actually two scriptures being quoted here, which isn't, um, I don't know if your Bible says it or not, but uh, the other scripture that's being quoted here is Exodus 23, 20 through 23. And as we've done, as we walk through Matthew, you know the drill, don't you? You know the drill by this point. Once we see a scripture quoted or alluded to in the New Testament, that's the clue that the author is telling us, hey, go look back at what those passages are and look at their surrounding context. Uh, the way the New Testament authors quote the old, they always quote it in context, but they quote it like a chain that here's a text, Exodus 23, 20 through 23, that has links with Malachi 3.1. Malachi knew about that, and so he linked those together. And then Jesus comes along and says, hey, look at this chain of links, and I'm going to pull on that chain for you. And what you're going to see is that what he quotes here is actually a, uh, a compilation, a smushed together version of those two passages. That's what's going on here. So in order to understand what Jesus is doing in Matthew, we need to take some time and go back first to Exodus 23 and then to Malachi 3. We're going to spend some time doing this. This is where you need to put your thinking caps on because this is profound. It's beautiful, but it is complex. So let's go back to Exodus 23. Now, let's give a little context, right? Um, uh, all the plagues have happened. Uh, Moses has brought uh, up all the people of Israel from Egypt, and they're at Mount Sinai. He, uh, the Ten Commandments get given in um, Exodus 20. Uh, and in the midst, and then further laws, further implications of the Mosaic Covenant are being given. Um, and the whole, the whole thing of the Exodus, the Exodus didn't stop when people came out of Egypt. The Exodus, the idea of the Exodus in Scripture stopped when the people of Israel were in their land and had a temple. So it lasted a long time. 
But that's the progress. That's the goal, right? To bring them into the promised land, the land promised by Abra to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, uh, the Abrahamic covenant. Well, here we are in the midst of the Mosaic covenant as it's being given, and we get this in verse 20 of Exodus 23. Behold, I send an angel. Now, pause. That looks somewhat similar to what we saw in um, Matthew. However, you notice the word angel there? We need a little talk about the word angel. So the word angel in both the Old Testament and the New Testament at its root level just means messenger. That's what the word means, uh, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, uh, whether you're talking Hebrew or whether you're talking Greek, it just means messenger. Now that messenger can be supernatural, in which case we usually translate it angel. Uh, or the messenger can just be a human person, in which case it's translated messenger. But at a root level, it's just messenger. So you could legitimately translate this, Behold, I send a messenger before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Namely, the promised land, the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Abrahamic covenant. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. Now, who is this messenger? Obviously, it's supernatural. Obviously, this is a supernatural messenger. That's why most English versions translate it angel. That's true. But there's more to it than that. Because this guy, the messenger, can be sinned against. And he can forgive sin. Well, you remember what happened in Matthew 9? The, the scribes and Pharisees said, only God can forgive sins. That's this guy. This is who we call the angel of the Lord, or the angel of Jehovah, or uh, I would prefer the translation, the messenger of Yahweh. The messenger of Yahweh. And he's already shown up a couple times in, uh, earlier on in the uh, Genesis and Exodus. And what you find, and this is even after Exodus, he shows up again and again and again. And every time he is equated with God, but he's distinct from God. God is speaking here in Exodus 23, and yet he's speaking of another person who must be God because he's able to forgive sins. You've got two people who are equally God, okay? But notice his role. Notice his role. What's the messenger's role here? The messenger's role is to prepare the way to go before Israel. That's the you in this passage. The you is Israel to go before Israel to prepare the way for them so they can go into the promised land. That's the messenger's job. What you come to find out about the messenger is you could describe his job description as the covenant enforcer. He's the covenant enforcer. So here he's bringing them into the, the land that's a part of the Abrahamic covenant. But later on, we find, say, in Judges, he shows up. And when Israel disobeys the Mosaic Covenant, which is what is being given in Exodus and Deuteronomy, when they disobey the Mosaic Covenant, uh, he, he not only, uh, he judges Israel. He calls them to account. He calls them to account. And that happens throughout all of the Old Testament. He's the covenant enforcer. He fights for Israel, and he also judges Israel when they are disobedient. So that's the covenant enforcer. He is God, and yet distinct uh, from another person who is God. That is the idea of the messenger. Notice the similar language, verse 20. Behold, I send a messenger before you, which is why we say that Jesus is quoting this. Okay, so let's think about that for a minute. Let's think about that in relation to what Jesus is saying in Matthew 11. 
Jesus is saying in Matthew 11, the scripture is written concerning John. Now, wait a minute, how can that be? Because we obviously can tell in, Matthew, or in Exodus 23, 20, that this guy's supernatural. Well, think about what John did. Think about what John did. He went out into the wilderness like Elijah, and he's calling Israel to repentance, and he's displaying that through the waters of baptism in the Jordan. You remember Joshua, when the people of Israel, they crossed the Jordan? Um, the guy called the commander of the Lord's army shows up, same guy as the messenger of Yahweh, right? But the idea is of preparation to enter the promised land. And we'll talk more about this as we talk about Malachi, but that's what John was doing. John was preparing Israel and their hearts to enter the promised land. And you're like, wait, 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 wait. Those people were already in the promised land. Well, they were there physically, but their hearts weren't there. Their hearts weren't there. And so that's why John was sent to prepare the way before Israel so they could enter the promised land. He functions like, he's obviously not supernatural, but John functions like the messenger of Yahweh, okay? So that's what we see in Exodus. Uh, the messenger of Yahweh, he, he, he completes the first Exodus. He's the guy along the way that uh, is paving the way for Israel in its first Exodus to get into the land. And what we're going to see is he does the same thing for the second Exodus, and we'll talk about that in conjunction with Malachi. So now, if your brains aren't already smoking a little bit, let's go ahead and go to Malachi. Malachi is, let's do a little bit of a history lesson here. So from Mount Sinai, from Mount Sinai, Israel does eventually go into the land. Joshua brings them to the land. They conquer all these good things. They have a king. They have a temple. Essentially, when the temple is built in the days of King Solomon, the first exodus is basically done, okay? Uh, it's the design of what the first exodus was supposed to bring about. But then from Solomon on, we get this spiral down where Israel's heart, they don't have a circumcised heart to obey God. And so the, uh, the, the, the promises, the curses that God promised to bring on Israel for disobedience happen and they get scattered to the winds. They get scattered in all these nations. It's called the exile. So the northern kingdom goes into exile in Assyria. The southern kingdom goes into exile into Babylon. But right before, right before going into exile, God gives promises through Isaiah, through Jeremiah, through other prophets saying, yeah, I'm scattering you now, but my promises in the Abrahamic covenant aren't done. I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to regather you and bring you into that land. And I'm going to fix the problem that puts you into exile to begin with. Namely, you don't have a circumcised heart. You don't know me as God, as the whole nation. And so there's this plan of uh, this big regathering of Israel uh, into the land of promise that was described as a second exodus. That's how it's described in the prophets. Well, what happens is after 70 years in exile, uh, a few thousand people of like the hundreds of thousands or millions of Jews in the, the nations, a few thousand come back and they build a rinky-dink temple. And it doesn't match what the prophet said. And we're kind of scratching our heads, Ezra and Nehemiah, and it's even worse than that. And Ezra and Nehemiah, which kind of recounts that return, their hearts haven't changed. And if you read Malachi, Malachi is a post-exilic prophet, and you read Malachi and you can see their hearts haven't changed. The heart pro there's still a heart problem. And we can see it even in the passage that gets quoted 
So we're actually going to start in Matthew 2, or Malachi, we're in Malachi, Malachi 2.17 to see, and you can see right here where their hearts are at. You have wearied Yahweh with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? So this is Israel, and they're like, uh, Malachi's telling them, you've wearied Yahweh with your words, and they're like, hey, us, Really? How so? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of Yahweh, and he delights in them. What are they saying? They're saying God's unjust. In fact, that's what the very next thing says. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? They're mocking God, and they're mocking God's justice. So you can see they do not have good hearts. There's a problem here. There's a problem here. And notice especially that phrase, where is the God of justice? Where is he? He better show up. Where is the God of justice? And God answers them with Malachi 3.1. Behold, I send my messenger. Same language as Exodus 23. Malachi is quoting Exodus 23. And Jesus is in turn is quoting both of those. But now we need to understand what's going on in Malachi 3.1. Now, pay very close attention. This is where it gets tricky. Behold, now who's speaking here? God. Okay, so God is speaking. Behold, I send my messenger. This is a human messenger in this case. And he, that's the messenger. So we got two people. We got God speaking and a human messenger. And he, that's the messenger, will prepare the way before me. So God says, I'm going to come. I'll answer your question. Where's the God of justice? I'm going to come and I'm going to show up and I'm going to show you where the God of justice is. And I'm going to send my messenger to prepare the way before me, God. So good, so far, so good. Until this. And the Lord, now wait a minute, God's talking and he's talking about the Lord. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming says Yahweh of hosts. The messenger of the covenant, we don't have the time to go into all of this, is the messenger of Yahweh. That's the best argument for what he's saying. So now you have what? God speaking, saying, hey, I'm going to send a human messenger before me and the Lord, another person who's God, is going to come and suddenly appear at his temple. So we have two people who are God in this passage, and the messenger, the human messenger, is going to show up before each one. Do you see that? This is where it gets complicated. Let's read it one more time. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant, I believe that's referring to the messenger of Yahweh, in whom you delight. Remember, they're saying, where's the God of justice? You, you, you say you're delighting in him, but you're really not. It's sarcasm. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says Yahweh of hosts. Verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming? That's day of the Lord language like we've been talking. And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to Yahweh. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to Yahweh as in the days of old and as in 
former years. So what's going on? There's going to be a human messenger. Then there's going to be a person who's called Yahweh, the messenger of the covenant, the messenger of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, also the Messiah. Those get equated here. And so you're going to have a human messenger, and he's going to come. And what is his job? His job is to purify Israel, to prepare it for, verse 5, then I, God is still speaking, I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who uh, swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says Yahweh of hosts. You see that? God's going to come. Where is the God of justice? He's coming. He's coming. I'm going to send a messenger before someone who's called God, the messenger of the covenant, the angel of the Lord, and then he's going to purify Israel, and then the other person who is speaking who is Yahweh is going to come in judgment. To put it in Trinitarian terms from later revelation, the Father is saying, I'm going to send a human messenger, and he's going to come before the Son, who is the messenger of the covenant, and then I'm going to come for judgment. That's what the Father is saying, to put that all together. Now we get a little bit more info already. Now let's just one one more thing before we leave Malachi 3:1. Why did Malachi 3:1 quote Exodus 23:20? Because there it's the messenger of the covenant who prepares the way for Israel. But notice what the messenger is doing here. The messenger is preparing the way for the messenger of Yahweh. The human messenger is preparing the way for the messenger of Yahweh. Why? Because the human messenger is going to prepare hearts, and we're going to see that in Malachi 4, but then the messenger of the covenant, the covenant enforcer is going to come, and he's going to purify Israel for the second exodus. He did the first exodus, he's going to do the second exodus. We get more information at the end of Malachi on the same coming, Malachi 4.1. For behold, the day is coming, that's day of the Lord language, the day of judgment and salvation, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will stumble, will, will, will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Yahweh of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked for... They will be like ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says Yahweh of hosts. Now catch this. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest they come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So now who's the human messenger? Elijah. Elijah the prophet's going to come before God comes for the day of the Lord. But notice his job. Who's the human messenger? What's Elijah's job? Turning the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Basically, you could say repentance. We could discuss more of that later, but repentance lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. In other words, Elijah's going to come, and he's supposed to prepare people's hearts for repentance, and if he succeeds, well and good, the day of the Lord's going to come. If he doesn't, 
If he doesn't succeed, then God's going to strike the land, the land of Israel, with a decree of utter destruction. All right, now we can go back to Matthew 11 and tie it all together. Verse 10, Jesus is speaking about John the Baptist. This is he, John the Baptist, of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Okay, from an Exodus 23 perspective, John the Baptist is acting like the messenger of Yahweh to prepare people's hearts for the second Exodus. But from a Malachi 3 perspective, he is preparing the way for the bona fide messenger of Yahweh who is going to purify Israel and lead them in a second Exodus. That's what is going on. From, a Malachi, or from an Exodus 23 perspective, the you in Matthew 11.10 is Israel. From a Malachi 3.1 perspective, the you is God. Now, how does that work? It works if you're the Messiah, because the Messiah is both God and man, and as the ultimate king of Israel, he is Israel in his person. So what is happening is Jesus is saying, John the Baptist prepared the way before me, who's both God and man, the ultimate king of Israel, is Israel in a person. I'm the messenger of the covenant that was in the Old Testament, and I'm going to bring you in your second exodus into your land. That's what Jesus is saying by quoting those two passages together. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is awesome. And what is he saying? He's saying to the crowds, understand who John is, right? He is a prophet and he's more than a prophet. Why is he more than a prophet? Because of his role, because he's the messenger that prepares the way for the messenger of Yahweh, me, the refiner of Israel, to bring you into the land. This is why he ends in verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. We just saw that. Why? Because of who he is and his role in redemptive history. And yet Jesus tacks this on and it transitions him to a new topic. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, why does he start talking about the kingdom? Because the day of the Lord is co- coincides with the coming of the kingdom. And all that we saw in Malachi, all that we saw there, like you could describe the day of the Lord, the, the day that God is going to come and judge his enemies and rescue his people and bring about his kingdom. It's all coming together. That is why he starts talking about the kingdom. And what is he saying? He's saying John stands at a tipping point. He stands at a tipping point of history. We've got all the Old Testament. He's going to talk about this more in a second. And he stands right at the edge. He stands right at Malachi. He stands right there. He's right before the coming of the kingdom, right before the day of the Lord. But what's even better than that? Well, when the kingdom actually comes and being in that kingdom. Jesus is not saying that the kingdom is present. He's saying when the kingdom comes, it's going to be fantastic. You think John the Baptist is the greatest among those born of women? You ain't seen nothing yet because when the kingdom comes, the least in the kingdom is better off than he is. Why is he getting them to think about it? Remember, he's talking to the crowds. Well, let's go on. Let's go on what he says. Verse 12, 
from the days of John the Baptist. That's basically saying his ministry. He started his ministry in, in Matthew 3, from the days of John the Baptist until now. And here we get into an interpretive issue. The kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Now, uh, some you might notice a little footnote in your Bible um, where there's uh, where it sa- after it says the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. You can translate that in one of two ways. It's a very difficult problem. You could translate it the way it's written in the ESV or NASB, but you could also translate it this way: From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven is pressing itself violently, and the violent take it by force. Well, that's different than saying the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. One, it's a passive where the kingdom is suffering something, something's being done to the kingdom, and the other is saying the kingdom's doing something. Okay, that's the option. How do we know? How do we know? Well, notice what it says a little bit later on in the second of the half of that verse, and the violence. So we got this verb for violence, and then we've got this violent people, and the violent take it, you could also render that plunder it, plunder the kingdom by force. What's that talking about? It's talking about guys like Herod Antipas, who arrested John for his message, who opposed John's message. What did they do? They threw him into prison. They plundered the kingdom's resources by putting him into prison. So what's the first part mean? Does that mean the first part, uh, the kingdom has suffered violence? No, that would mean the kingdom was present. What was John and Jesus' message and the 12's message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near meaning it's not here yet, but it's right there. We described it this way. Maybe you got a friend coming over. You don't know exactly when he's going to come over, uh, but he could be right outside the door and he hasn't knocked yet and you don't know. It's imminent. He's imminent. That's the idea of the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. And John and Jesus stand right at the cusp of what Malachi was talking about. The kingdom is pressing. It's pressing itself violently. We're preaching. We're calling people to repentance. And there's a violent response. There's a violent response. So I think the better option is to say the kingdom of heaven is pressing itself violently through preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. Through the demonstration of miracles, kingdom fortes, the kingdom's pressing. And then on the opposite side, you've got violent response. Guys like Herod Antipas, the scribes and the Pharisees who are opposing the kingdom coming. And he's getting the crowds to think about all of this. And you'll see why here in a second. For, and then he supports, Jesus supports what he just said. For all of the prophets and the law, that's the whole Old Testament. So starting from Malachi, working our way backward all the way to Genesis. All the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And, verse 14, if you are willing to accept, to welcome, to receive, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What is Jesus saying? He's saying John stands at that tipping point. He's right there. But notice what he says. What does he say about John? Verse 14. The main assertion is that he's Elijah who's going to come. So Jesus confirms, uh, Malachi 4, that Elijah has to come before the day of the Lord. But did you notice something else he did? He's the little word. If, if, 
Verse 14, and if you are willing, and the original literally reads, if you are willing to receive, doesn't have an it, doesn't have an it or an object as the English rendering usually puts it. If you're willing to accept, if you're willing to receive, he is Elijah who is to come. What is Jesus saying? Well, what's this word receive? We've actually seen it before. We've seen it really recently in Matthew 10. Turn back to Matthew 10 briefly. So Matthew 10, remember, Jesus is speaking. He is speaking to the apostles, and he's sending them out on mission. And notice what he says. Remember, their message is also repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. That's their message. They're to press the kingdom violently, too. And notice what verse 14 says. If anyone will not receive, same word that we see in Matthew 11. If anyone will not receive you or listen to your word, shake off the dust from your feet where you leave, uh, when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. What is reception? Listening to the messengers and their message. Repenting. Repenting. Notice what Jesus says later on in the chapter, verse 42, or verse 40, excuse me. Whoever receives, same word, receives you, receives me, and whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person because he's a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these one of the, these little ones, even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Reception already has a built-in understanding once we get to Matthew eleven fourteen. Reception means repentance, believing the messengers, and believing Jesus. So what is Jesus saying then in Matthew eleven fourteen? He's saying, if you receive it, crowds, if you receive the message, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. If you listen to it, if you heed it, crowds, then John will be Elijah. So then the question becomes, are the crowds going to heed the message, repent? If they do, if the crowds, if Israel heeds the message, repent, John will be Elijah, and the day of the Lord and the kingdom will come. It's not there yet. It's pressing, but it's not there yet. What happens if the crowds reject Jesus and John and the apostles? What happens if they reject the message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near? Do you remember the end of Malachi 4? If Elijah doesn't succeed in his mission, then the land gets cursed with a ban of utter destruction, which sets up for what's about to happen in Matthew. I told you this is a turning point in Matthew because what we're going to see is that the crowds don't accept, the leaders don't accept. And so John becomes Elijah-like, but not Elijah. And we'll see that as we see the rest of Matthew unfold. 
Why do we need to know this? I mean, this is, man, you guys have been working hard with me, working through this, right? This is heavy stuff. Why do we, why do we need to know this? Well, why is Jesus telling the crowds about this? To understand what's at stake. To understand what's at stake with repentance and reception of the gospel message. They had the option, in a sense, that if they would have repented, the kingdom would have come right then. With all of its glory, with all of its wonders. And yet, they didn't understand. That's why Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Listen, listen what's at stake. Now, in a sense, we're thankful that they didn't because it gave us the opportunity to repent and to know Jesus. But really, it's the same option here today. What is at stake? What is at stake for you right now, sitting in the pew? We are all sinners deserving of God's wrath. We deserve God's justice because sin is not just a naughty thing. It's slapping. It's a personal offense against God. It's slapping the infinitely worthy God in the face, and it deserves an infinite punishment Namely, going through the day of the Lord and experiencing God's wrath, God's gloom, God's only his presence to punish for all eternity. And yet the same message is held out to us. What what do we do? What do we do? Receive. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. The kingdom of heaven has drawn near in this place. We are an embassy of Christ's future kingdom. When you come here, every Sunday, you are drawing near. The kingdom of heaven is drawing near. It's not here, but it's drawing near. It's an embassy of the kingdom. You feel the press. You feel, uh, the, you feel kingdom joy. You see kingdom transformation. We worship the king. And what's the call? The call is to repent and entrust yourself to Christ. That's an ongoing call. Even if I, as a believer, I've entrusted myself to Christ, I got to keep entrusting myself to Christ. I got to keep repenting. I got to keep turning from sin. I got to keep following Christ. And so the message is the same for all of us each week. Will we receive or not? Will we repent or not? The day of the Lord is coming. He will come and execute vengeance. It will be the day of fiercest gloom and sorrow to those who will not repent and entrust themselves to Christ. And it will be a day of salvation, peace, joy, rescue, vindication for those who repent and entrust themselves to Christ, swear allegiance to Christ. And just as Christ ended his, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Christ wants you to listen up and to embrace him and his message of repentance to escape God's judgment and to know him as your treasure, to follow him with your whole life, to give up your life, to follow him as his disciple, to escape God's judgment, but also to experience God's salvation, to know the living God, to know his glory, to dwell in his presence for all eternity. God is the good of the good news. We do not peddle the gospel and say, all right, come and Jesus will give you a better life, No, he won't, not necessarily here and now, but he will give you himself. And God will give you himself, and that is the greatest treasure. That's what we were designed to have, and that's what Jesus offers if you repent and entrust yourself to him. Let's pray.